Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about the man who inspired Psycho, The Silence of the Lambs, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'll be talking about the real story behind the Amityville Horror. Brandy. Yes, Why don't Kristen? you explain what your idea was so, for this episode? Let me just start by saying that Kristen is real pissed at me for this <laughs> idea. That <laughs> um, I had the idea for this very special Halloween edition of Let's Go to Court that we would do cases that inspired horror movies. I When I first heard it, I thought you were a genius. I loved the idea. <laughs> then you were like... Hey, why don't you do that Ed Gein guy? Did you know that he ins- what? Okay, and the reason that I recommended him to you is because I know you've seen Psycho. Yep. And love I know it. you don't love horror movies. So right. I figured you'd seen nothing else. That's pretty much accurate. <laughs> um, and I I don't know what I was thinking, but I wasn't thinking, oh, great. I'll go research the most horrible thing that I've ever read about in my life. Um. In my defense, Mm -hmm. I believe when I recommended him to you that I said, uh, I don't know a lot about him, but I do know that he inspired the characters Norman Bates and Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And you thought that that meant like this guy really loved bunnies. (laughs) I I was unprepared (laughs) for how bad it would be. Uh, I apologize for that. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I did to you maliciously, I promise. Well, I'm going to read this script to you maliciously. <laughs> oh, no. We'll see how you like it. Brandy. Yes, Christy. People need to wear shirts. That's right. Um, most places in public require it. No shirt, no shoes, no service. And you can't buy shoes at thegaminghistorian.com, but you can buy shirts. shirts. They're just $10. You can get your classic style or your retro style. Uh, they make great stocking stuffers. <laughs> Do they not? <laughs> Yeah, go ahead and stuff your stocking full of them. (laughs) Sounds gross. I know, I'm sorry. All right, well, if you'd like to stuff your stocking full of Gaming Historian t-shirts, head on over to thegaminghistorian.com. So, I'm really excited for this themed episode. I really enjoy themed episodes. Give me two minutes to ruin your day. Okay, here's the deal, is that I know that you're pissed about your case. Mm -hmm. I picked my own case, and I had nightmares about it last night. Uh (laughs) We should also explain right now, so we're recording at a weird time. Yes. Norman is in, well, he's not in Portland right now. He's on the way to the house right now. So while I researched this terribly creepy case, I was alone at home. And now we're going to be telling each other creepy stories. And you know Norman is going to sneak up on us because he loves to sneak oh, up yeah. on us. I'm just waiting for his little face 
to pop up in that window. <sighs> you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. Hit me. Hit me with your best face <laughs> mask. Plainfield, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Saturday, November 16th. It was the start of deer season in 1957. So all the men essentially were out deer hunting. And for the most part, they were doing this to feed their families. So it was a pretty serious deal. Plainfield, small downtown area, was pretty much empty because all the men were out in the woods. But even then, something was off. Mm -hmm. Because even the hardware store was closed. And that was very unusual. The store's owner, 58-year-old Bernice Warden, was nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. By that afternoon, people were getting concerned. They were like, why is her store closed? Pretty soon, her son finishes deer hunting. He gets into his mom's store, and he's horrified by what he sees. The store is a disaster. There's blood on the floor. Mm -mm. Police show up. That's a real missed opportunity, you should have said. There was blood everywhere. I don't think it was. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was completely confined to the floor. Listen, if you want some gore, just (laughs) sit tight, lady. (laughs) Sit tight. By the way, I should mention that most of this first part comes from an episode of A&E's biography. Excellent. Police show up and immediately Bernice's son gives them a tip. He says, hey, just yesterday, Ed Gein was here. He was asking about the price of antifreeze. So let's pause to talk about Ed Gein. What? By this point, Ed was 51 years old. Mm -hmm. He was a bachelor. And he lived alone on a very large farm. Some sources said 155 acres. One said 200 acres. Bottom line, it's a big, big, isolated farm. Excellent. People thought... He was nice, mm-hmm. but kind of weird. Yeah. And here's the thing. So in this episode that I watched, the guys were like, oh, yeah, I kind of liked him. He was a hard worker. But then they'd be like, but the women thought he was weird. Oh, guys. And so like one woman was like, yeah, I did not like the way he looked at me. So I kind of feel like it depends on who you ask. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, uh, dude had no social skills. He was kind of... The resident weirdo. He was a handyman and he did some babysitting jobs for people. So the 51 year old man did babysitting jobs for people. I don't know if this was like the 50s where it was like, oh, let the town weirdo watch our children. I don't know what that's that's fucking weird as shit. Yes, it's very (laughs) weird. It's super weird. So the sheriff and one other deputy are like, all right, we'll head over to Ed's place. Mm-hmm. They go over. The doors are locked. The place didn't have electricity, so everything was pitch black. And they decided, mm, let's, let's kind of peek around in his woodshed, see if we find anything. Oh, no. They go into the woodshed with their flashlights on. And one of them felt something bump against his shoulder. So he shines his flashlight on it, and it is the body of Bernice Warden. Oh, gosh. She's been decapitated, 
Oh, no. She's strung up her feet by her feet, mm. and she's been gutted like a deer. Oh, my gosh. Disgusting. Oh. Terrible. At some point in all this chaos, again, there's just two of them there with their yeah. flashlights. They find Ed. They take him into custody. Then the sheriff and deputy got a bigger crew to go back to Ed's farm. But again, it's dark. It's cold. They just have their flashlights. They're going through this creepy, big, old house. Oh, my gosh. Why doesn't it have electricity? It's 1957. Didn't have indoor plumbing. Didn't have electricity. What the fuck? That's like the least weird part of this story. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, am I focusing on the wrong thing? For sure. You're like, okay, so he decapitated a woman, hung her upside down. But he didn't have a light on? Oh, gosh. How did he survive? (laughs) (laughs) So they go in. The place is disgusting. Mm -hmm. Like, dude never cleans, never took out the trash. The place is a gigantic mess. Police are like, yuck. Then it got worse. They started finding body parts. (gasps) They found noses. Oh, God. They found a... Multiple? Oh, yeah. They found a trash can made out of skin. Oh, my gosh. They found chairs upholstered out of human skin. We're just getting all the skin. You're about to find out. Oh, no. They found human masks made out of real human faces that were preserved and hung on the wall like decoration. Yeah, that was like the little bit I knew about him. The mask thing. Yeah. It gets worse. Oh, gosh. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit more, but just know that I am leaving so much out because <laughs> I was like, nope, done, no, get it <laughs> They found a lampshade made out of human skin. They found a box of salted vulva. Oh, God. <laughs> salted vulva. Yeah, because he was preserving this shit. Oh, They found a belt made of human nipples. Oh, no. Last one. Is everybody still hanging in there? Oh, this is terrible. This is is disgusting. Who told you to do this Exactly. See, this is when I texted you and I was like, I hate you forever. Oh, no. (laughs) Then an officer found a paper bag. (gasps) What was in it? He opened it. I don't think I want to know. Saw hair. (gasps) Grabbed it. Is it Bernice's head? Pulled it out. It was a fucking head. Is it Bernice's? No. (gasps) It's somebody else's? And the officers in the room recognized it. Oh, no. It was the head of Mary Hogan. So Mary was a local bar owner who'd been missing for three years. Three years? Yes. Holy shit. Her head was recognizable after that amount of time? That's what I was kind of amazed by. And I'm wondering, like... They probably had it packed in salt or something. I mean, yeah, obviously this was not his first rodeo. Clearly he'd done something to preserve it if they were able to recognize it. Well, I mean, he's clearly preserving all of this stuff. Yeah. So he's probably tanning it like deer hide, right? Yes, yes. So police are beside themselves. They are freaking out. They're like, we don't even know how many people this guy has murdered. And where the fuck is he? Oh, he's at the police station. Oh, that's a great 
bit of information to leave out, Kristen. I said it. No, you didn't. I swear to you. Where? I swear Where to you. I said he was at the police station. I said it like a minute ago. I said, I said that the police, like they, the police and the one deputy, they uh-huh. found the body hanging upside yeah. down. Yeah. And at some point, they found Ed. They brought him back, and then they oh. came back with a bigger crew. Okay. Welcome to the podcast, Brandy. <laughs> I don't know where you've I'm been. I'm sorry, I was so focused on the body hung up like a deer. <laughs> okay, I'll let that slide then. <laughs> they keep moving through the house, and then they get to a doorway that has been completely blocked off. Oh no! Yeah, I don't think they want to see what's behind it. They didn't, but they did it anyway. Yep. <gasps> so it's all boarded up, and they're like, "Oh shit." If this is what's outside of the boarded up no area, fucking shit. what the hell is behind this door? <gasps> what is it? They get the door open. They shine their flashlights in. And it is a perfectly pristine room. Oh, no. No body parts. No trash. Just a lot of dust. The bed was made. There's a Bible on the nightstand. Police are like, what? That's odd. Meanwhile, Ed is sitting in his jail cell. And for about 30 hours, he did not say anything. Then the officers start putting pressure on him. They're like, hey, you horrifying monster. We found a bunch of the most disturbing stuff ever at your house. Care to explain? And at that point, Ed was like, yeah, okay, I'll talk. But first, I want a slice of apple pie with a piece of cheddar cheese on top. Okay, why do people eat it that way? Is that a thing? It's a thing. It sounds disgusting to me. It sounds absolutely disgusting. It's totally a way that people eat it. And I've. I thought this was a weird murderer way to eat it. No, it's a way people eat it. It sounds disgusting. You know how I like it? Scoop of vanilla ice cream. Yeah. That's the that proper sounds way. Great. Yeah. Oh, you know what I like? I like to slab a big hunk of Velveeta on top. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's freaking weird. Why cheese? I don't understand. That's the weirdest thing about this guy. I don't think it is. <laughs> Ed starts talking, and what he said surprised them. He said he only murdered Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. All those other body parts, he didn't murder all those women. Where'd they come from? Well, you see, Brandy, for the past several years, he'd read the newspaper. He would look at the obituaries. Oh, my gosh. To see when people were being buried. Then, when the bodies were still fresh, he'd go to the cemetery dig up the body, toss the body in his car, and drive it back home. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Gross! This guy's gross, Kristen. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, man. (laughs) At first, police didn't believe him. They thought, this is too far-fetched. So they went and they exhumed two of the bodies that he said he dug up. Yeah, and they weren't there? Nope. Yeah. So they were like, ooh, he's telling the truth. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He eventually admitted that he'd made himself a woman suit. (gasps) 
Yeah. Ooh, like Buffalo Bill. Yes. Yes. So he made like, oh, so gross. He made like a pair of leggings. And then he made like, you know, a, I guess like a vest thing. And he made himself a vagina that he'd just like slap on there. Oh, no. Oh, man. Sometimes he'd wear it outside. Then and- he'd then look in the mirror and say, I'd fuck me. <laughs> That's a line from Silence of the Lambs. I'm not being gross, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad you clarified that. Because like, if someone didn't know that movie, they'd yeah. be like, what the hell? <laughs> so this source that I saw said that sometimes he'd wear it outside and dance around in it. So I'm kind of like, okay, that's weird. But he's but on it, all these acres, so it's not like anybody could probably see him. But also, it said that sometimes he'd dig a grave in it, which... Oh surely not. Surely not, right? And his woman leggings and 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 top matching top. Did it have, did it have boobs? Well, of course it had boobs. I mean, like you you're making a woman's suit. <laughs> what are you going to skip the boobs? <laughs> oh, I, I wish I was a man. I'll just skip the I dick. Guess. <laughs> I guess he did go as far as to tape on a vagina. So. Yeah, well, oh. yeah. How do you uh, probably don't need to know. No. How do you keep them stuffed? Do you think he stuffed them? I have no idea. <laughs> you I, don't want to think about like it at so all. So gross! Like <laughs> this is this is the worst thing ever. Um. So he's telling he's telling these stories, mm-hmm. and my understanding is when he would tell what he did, it was just like totally normal voice, you know, just like hey, you wow. know. Then I made the woman suit, like you do. <laughs> And uh, that perfectly pre- preserved room in his house, that was a shrine to his mother. Uh-huh. hmm So word gets out about these crimes. And the people of Plainfield were shocked. So, you know, like I said, he babysat some of their That's kids. That's what, yes! <laughs> the local media reports on it. Pretty soon the national media picks it up. Reporters swarm this town that I don't know if I've said this already, but they had like a 700, a population of like 700 Holy people. shit. So everyone wants to know, how the hell does someone do something like this? Yeah. What is wrong with this guy? Yeah. At this point, the court stepped in and they were like, mm, we need someone to evaluate. Uh-huh. For a month, Ed underwent a psychiatric evaluation. And that's how they found out about his childhood. (gasps) Here's what they discovered. Ed Gein was born in 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. He had an older brother named Henry and two shitty parents named Augusta and George. George. Which one's the woman? Augusta. That's a... I guess that's a woman's. Yeah, Augusta. All right. Again, you're getting weirded out about the <laughs> wrong thing. Can it, can it be a unisex name? Or do you call... I thought Augustus was for... I guess that's probably man. true. You gotta tack an S on it, huh? Yeah. All right. You good? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so George was a violent alcoholic who couldn't keep a job. And Augusta was... A religious nut job. Like, some sources are like, oh, she was Lutheran and blah, blah, blah. But, like, no, just religious nut job is fine with me. Like, one, like Carrie's mom? Um, 
It's been so long since I saw that, but we'll get into it. But yeah, pretty damn close, right. I think. All right. At one point, George owned a small grocery store, which he eventually sold. And that was when they moved out to that big farm mm-hmm. in Plainfield, Wisconsin. Augusta loved being out on the farm. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, she had these two young boys and she was convinced that the outside world was going to have a negative influence on her sons. Oh, no. But you take away the outside world, mm-hmm. and boom, no bad influence. I don't think that's going to work out well. Nope. <laughs> she let them go to school, and that was it. Afterward, they came right home to do their chores. If Ed tried to make friends, Augusta would punish him. She didn't want any bad kids hanging around influencing her boys. She wanted to be the influencer Mm -hmm. because she had a very important worldview to share with them. She told Ed and Henry that the world is basically an evil place. That's just how it is. Wow. She loved to preach about the evils of drinking and the evils of women. She said that women were basically controlled by the devil and that we're all mm. prostitutes. I guess she was the oh, she's, exception. Yeah, it, what, <laughs> is she excluding herself from that? I would imagine. Wow. She mm. wanted them to stay pure. Mm. Which I think Forever? Is, I imagine so. Oh, my god! I mean, if all women are instruments of the devil slash yeah. prostitutes. Ooh. Better only hang out with the dead ones, am I right? Yeah. Augusta was verbally abusive. She was mean. She was controlling. Oh, she was mean and verbally abusive. Yes. (laughs) You don't often find those two together. Shut up. I hate this so much. This is the worst episode. I like my old timey ones. Oh, there was a con job in. This is disgusting. So despite all that, Ed loved his mommy very much. Oh, no. He stayed in school until the seventh grade. And after that, he stayed at home and worked on the farm. Spent more time with mom. Mm. Fast forward to 1940. Ed is 34. His dad is 66. And his dad dies of heart failure. Mm Mm-hmm. So now it's just Ed, Henry, and Augusta living out on this farm. Mm -hmm. Then, in the spring of 1944, there was a brush fire on the property. Ed and Henry start trying to battle the fire, but then Ed lost sight of Henry. So eventually he got the police. He said, I don't know where my brother is. But then he led police right to him. Oh, sketch. Super sketch. Mm-hmm. I think you need to add a third one to your list there, Ed. For sure. Ooh. Some people say that Henry's body was bruised and that his death was super suspicious. Duh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, police didn't think so. They just wrote it off as a tragic accident. So there was no autopsy. And the medical examiner listed Henry's cause of death as asphyxiation. I saw somewhere, and I want to say this was just Wikipedia, but I saw somewhere that at this time, like, Henry was starting to kind of badmouth their mom. Mm -hmm. And he was, like, interested in a woman. wasn't going to stand for that. No one talks about my mom. 
Oh my gosh. So now it's just... What if Kyla started talking about about your mom? Would you push her into a brush fire? And I'd be like, I don't know where she is. Oh, maybe she's right (laughs) there. She is. (laughs) Don't worry, Kyla, you're safe. (laughs) So now it's just Ed and Augusta. But it wasn't that way for long. A few months after Henry's death, Augusta had a stroke. She was paralyzed. Ed waited on her. I mean, he did everything for her. Oh, my gosh. But then she had another stroke, and she died that December. What year is this? Uh, 1944. Okay. So Ed took her death. Not, great. No, oh, great. He was great. He was fine. He, you know, he was throwing hard. parties. Oh, my. <laughs> he spun out. So here's he's in this situation where... He's afraid of women. Yeah. Has like no contact with the outside world. His one person in his life just died. So he was lonely. Real lonely. He confessed that that's when he started digging up people's graves. He just wanted to snuggle. Oh my God. That is so gross. Oh. He dug up somewhere around 14 graves. And he admitted that he killed Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. Although he later said that he couldn't remember killing Mary Hogan. But I'm kind of like, you've got her head in a bag, so I don't Mm -hmm. give a shit. Ugh. Ugh. Okay, so now we're getting in. (laughs) Sorry, what? This is so good. You hate it so much. I feel like people should not. Like, if you're new to the podcast, maybe don't start on this one. (laughs) This is so bad. <laughs> is this not the grossest thing you've ever heard? Yeah, it's pretty gross. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Yeah. So he he was charged in the murder and robbery of Bernice Warden because apparently the cash register is missing too. I I kind of feel like at that point who gives a shit? Yeah. But, you know, whatever. They charged him with that. Ooh. He pled innocent by reason of insanity. On January 6th, si- uh. what? <laughs> You think he might have a good shot at that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think a real sane person is making a belt out of nipples, Christian. (laughs) What if it's the fashion? You know, you don't want to get left behind. Nipple belts are all the rage that season. That's right. Oh, no. I mean, think about the things we've worn. Nothing even close to a nipple belt. Are you trying to think of something you've worn that's close to a nipple belt? Well, you had that chin coin purse. (laughs) (laughs) So on January 6th, 1958, they had hearings to determine whether Ed was competent to stand trial. Mm -hmm. A doctor who had examined Ed took the stand and said, Okay, guys, this guy has schizophrenia. He's delusional. He thinks he had the power to raise the dead. He had a super weird relationship with his mother. The judge heard all of that, and he was like, yeah, this guy's not sane. Mm-hmm. Ed Gein is not fit to stand trial. So the judge sent Ed to a psychiatric hospital uh-huh. in Wisconsin. Meanwhile, the looky-loos are all over Plainfield. Yeah. They're going up to Ed's house. They're enthralled. At one point, there was an auction scheduled to auction off all of his creepy belongings (gasps) and his house. Yeah, this is disgusting. I mean, 
There were rumors that someone wanted to buy all this stuff and make it into a tourist destination. Mm-hmm. But then... You wouldn't go there? No. I absolutely would not. You would. I, I know you I would. I 100% would go there. Yuck. No. <laughs> I would judge you the whole time. <laughs> I, why would you go there? Never seen a belt made out of nipples. Can't you use your imagination? <laughs> Can't you use Photoshop? I mean, like, <laughs> I would really hope that they wouldn't be allowed to display that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine. I, I mean, it seems weird that somebody would be allowed to buy that stuff. But I mean, I guess surely that was like at the crime lab, and like yeah. the stuff they were selling off was the couch not made of human skin, <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably. Just the regular lampshades. Yeah. Not the skin ones. Do not Google image search this. Can you see this stuff? I saw too much is what I'm telling you. I didn't image search it, but like in these articles, people, these freaks who are writing this stuff are like, you'll probably want to see this. You'll probably want to see this. And no, I don't. (laughs) No. (laughs) This theme was not my idea. (laughs) So then... Ten days before the auction, the house mysteriously burned to the ground, (gasps) which I love. Yeah. I know you don't love that, but, like, I think that's great. Nobody gets to see the skin couch. Yeah, no one should be, like, no. Hard hard no. I'm going to save you from yourself, Brandy. (laughs) But, like, that's what someone did uh, with... What, what's that Kansas City serial killer? Robert Berdella? Is that his name? Mm-hmm. He like chained up guys in his basement. Yeah. And when he was caught, like I think some philanthropist in Kansas City just bought the house, mm-hmm. bulldozed it. Yeah. And now it's just, I think the house next to it like has the land and it's like their driveway or something, yeah. which I cannot mm-hmm. imagine. But yeah. BTK's house, they, the city bought and bulldozed. How do you feel about that? Do you not like that? No, I think it's good because you yeah. don't want somewhere that people can come treat it like a shrine. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Whew. So the cause of the blaze was unknown. But that said he needed a hero. <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't completely stop the auction, though, because someone bought his car. Ooh. And, you know, his car was what he used to transport Ooh. these bodies. So the person would take it around to county fairs <gasps> and charge people like a quarter to the come murder look. mobile? Yep. Step right up. Take a look. Oh! Were there like weird stains? I'm sure there were. I'm sure there was like dirt. I mean, the guy didn't clean. We know he didn't clean. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, you can't take that to the car wash. Ooh. So. Ooh. By the way, in the episode of A&E, the guy was talking about like, oh, this was at the county fair where like they'd have, you know, the bearded person, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like watching that like it's for sure the bearded lady. Bearded person would be a real letdown. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. They just, it's just a man with a beard. <laughs> Step right up. Meanwhile, at the psychiatric hospital, Mm. the staff was fairly impressed by Ed. He was quiet, well-behaved, 
Then in 1968, so like 10 years after mm-hmm. all this went down, Ed's doctors wrote a letter to the court. They said, we now think that he's fit to stand mm. trial. What? There was one big problem. What and okay, so so now we're into the court stuff, and I just you I tried to piece this together using yeah. newspapers.com. So I hope I've got it here. Well, I'm gonna get in my time machine and go back to the trial and fact check. Oh yeah, it. why don't you head out with Ed hang out with Ed? Yeah. hmm You know, you're not quite old enough. Ooh. He, he liked to pick women who had like were like the same age as his body mother type as his mom. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, go now. Ooh. Don't wait till you're 58. So there was just one big problem. In a February hearing, Ed's attorney said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Judge, you need to throw some of this stuff out because the police didn't do this whole thing by the book. They called Arthur Sheely to the stand, who was the sheriff at the time of Ed's arrest. They just start peppering him with questions. And for the most part, Arthur was like, I don't know. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. It was 10 years ago. Yeah. At one point, Ed's attorneys asked that he be declared a hostile witness. And the judge denied the motion. Ed's lawyer, Dominic Frenzy, said, hey, Ed had a right to remain silent. He had the right to an attorney. And both of those rights were violated. Uh Uh-huh. Sheriff, did you advise my client of his rights before you questioned him? Did you have a search warrant for his property? Did you ask his permission to search his property? And Arthur was like, I don't remember. I don't remember? Yeah, which is a no. Oh, yeah. Right, I mean. definitely a no. Ed's lawyer then questioned the assistant administrator of the state crime lab. He asked some of the same questions. And the guy was like, yeah, I informed him of his rights. Not immediately. (laughs) And no, I didn't write down his confession. And yeah, it was just the two of us in the room when he confessed. But his original lawyer knew what was happening. He told Ed to answer my questions and tell the truth, but just not to sign anything. And that's what he did. Mm-hmm. This stuff kind of fascinates me because by this point, Miranda writes, like that ruling had happened, I think, two years prior. Oh, okay. That's so they what I wondered when that. So they were a pretty new thing. Yeah. The Supreme Court had ruled on this, I think, in 1966, that police had to give people their Miranda rights. Uh-huh. So Ed's attorney is like, hey, In light of that new Supreme Court decision, Ed's confession should be thrown out. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the judge decided that he wouldn't throw out the confession. But Ed's attorneys weren't finished. Well, and I... Yes, the the ruling had happened two years earlier, but the arrest had happened ten years earlier. See, that's what I wonder, like... Surely it wasn't retroactive. It couldn't was be. It? I mean, or they'd I'm, just be like, opening the floodgates yeah. of the prison. All right, you're free to go. Yeah. Don't kill anybody. And I wonder if maybe... Or wear their skin. <laughs> yeah, because he, t- he killed two yeah. people. Well, I bet he killed more than two I people. bet he probably did, too. Ed's attorneys weren't finished. They took this thing all the way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So they said, we want you to dismiss these charges. 
on the grounds that the warrants that were used against our client were unconstitutional. They said that the warrants were issued by a district attorney and not a magistrate, which is against the new rules. Was it against the rules in 1957? You sound like the prosecutor. (laughs) So the, the, the assistant attorney general is like, are you kidding? The new rules do not apply to this old case. And oh, by the way, Supreme Court, if you dismiss these charges on this basis, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to make new warrants, and then we're going to take him in again and go through this whole thing again. This is not going to change anything. Yeah. The Supreme Court sided with the prosecution, but they didn't say why. Hmm. By this point, Arthur Sheely, who was the sheriff when Ed was arrested, has died. Wow. So Ed's defense attorneys returned to court, and this time they have claims that the sheriff physically abused Ed when he was in custody. Really? And very believable claims. Really? Yeah. So three former deputies all testified that Arthur shoved Ed against a brick wall. Wow. Two of them said that Ed never admitted to shooting Bernice. The defense is again like, you've got to throw this out. Mm Mm-hmm. They weren't doing this by the book. They didn't have a search warrant when they first entered his home. This whole thing has to be. Yeah. But the assistant attorney general was like, hello. When Bernice wasn't in her store, that constituted an emergency situation. And because of that situation, officers are legally allowed to enter the home and search for her. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense. And I totally agree with yeah. that. That was an emergency situation. Yeah. And I do want to stop and say, like, I feel so sorry for this sheriff. Obviously, I don't, you know, it's not it's not good to be abusive to yeah. someone who's in custody. But I just cannot imagine you're a small town Wisconsin sheriff. You think you know what your job is. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden... You go into this dark house. Freaking house of horrors. Yes. Yeah. And then you come back and this little shit's eating apple pie with a slice of cheddar cheese on top Mm -hmm. and not talking. Mm hmm. You would have roughed him up too? I I think it would have to. For me, it would have to be a thing where, like, if you've gone in there and seen that stuff, you can't talk to the guy. Mm hmm. Or at least you need to cool down. I mean, it, it just would be impossible. Yeah. Ultimately, Judge Robert Golmar ruled that any statements Ed made about the crime could not be used in court. (gasps) Wow. In other words, the confession doesn't count, which I think that was a good ruling. I Mm -hmm. mean, clearly that was not a voluntary confession. Yeah. But he said you can use all the evidence that was found on the farm Mm -hmm. because that was an emergency situation. Mm Mm-hmm. Ed's trial began in November. His trial for the death of Bernice Warden lasted nine days. Mm-hmm. They only they only focused on this one yeah, death. Yeah. I feel like they figured, you know, they didn't want to bother with the expense mm-hmm. and all that of another charge. So at the request of the defense, and I think this dude had some pretty good defense attorneys, mm-hmm. they said, we don't want a jury trial. We just want to be heard in front of Judge Robert Golmar. The defense also requested a split trial where first the judge rules on whether uh, Ed is guilty of the crime. Uh Then he rules on whether Ed was sane at the time of the murder, which I did not know that was a thing. I didn't know that was a thing either. I wonder if it's still a thing. 
Probably, right? I imagine a lot's changed since 1960-whatever. Eight? That's 50 years ago. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So pretty early on, the judge dismisses the robbery charge. Uh He's like, there's not enough evidence here to say that the cash register found on Ed's property came from the hardware store. Really? Yeah, that's kind of how I feel, too. There is a cash register missing, Uh and then one found at his home. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, right. (laughs) Doesn't seem like that big of a stretch. No, and I'm, I don't, I don't, so many things to say. Yeah, Um, and he's like, but nice try defense, I'm not dismissing the murder charge, we're going to keep on trucking. Ed testified in his own defense. Mm. What did he say? He said that it had all been an accident. Oh, he'd accidentally dug up those graves and accidentally oops, oops, made lampshades oops. and upholstered a couch. And well, he's not on trial for all that. He's on trial for the murder of Bernice Warden. Okay, so he accidentally decapitated her and, and then hung her yeah, up uh-huh. like a deer. Yeah, hate it when that happens. Uh, can't Don't tell you? you how many times I've accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> he said he'd been in the hardware store. Examining a twenty-two caliber rifle. Oh, and he blew her head off? Yeah. When he accidentally discharged. Horrible mistake. And he couldn't remember what happened next. Okay. The prosec- I don't think that's a great story, Ed. <laughs> yeah. The prosecution was like, no way. They called an expert witness who said that if the murder had happened the way that Ed said it did, then several racks of merchandise would have had to have been knocked down because they would have been in the line of the shot. You know, if he was truly just like, you know, had it up by his waist and was like, oh, oops. But the defense was like, you guys, no, it wouldn't. No. (laughs) Come on, guys. (laughs) Leave it alone. (laughs) So he likes a belt with nipples on it. Let's celebrate our differences. (laughs) Finally, as the trial came to a close, the judge asked the defense and the prosecution, hey, what kind of verdict are you hoping for? I think this is super weird. What? uh, (laughs) We were uh, hoping for a not guilty. (laughs) (laughs) So the defense is like, Well, we would like uh, either second-degree murder or homicide by reckless conduct. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like they're at the buffet, and they're just like, Yeah, I'll take some of the uh, yellow. (laughs) (laughs) So the prosecution said, first-degree murder Mm -hmm. or accidental death. What? That is exactly my reaction. Okay, I want the... Top thing, yeah. Or I'll take oopsies. the filet mignon, uh huh, or spam some of that uh, dog food over there. <laughs> what the fuck? So the judge thought it over, and he declared Ed guilty of murder in the first degree. Wow. In his decision, Judge Golmar said the court does not accept the defendant's story. It just doesn't ring true to me. Hmm. He said, look, Ed didn't check her pulse. He didn't run and get help. He didn't try to get a doctor. In short, he didn't do the things that you do when you cause an accident. Yeah. And also, Ed had a lot of experience around guns. He's not the type to just accidentally Accidentally discharge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After that trial, 
they had the sanity hearing. Mm -hmm. During that hearing, two psychiatrists testified. One said that Ed, quote, could not conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. They both said that Ed was, he was insane. legally insane. Wow. Well, can you imagine? No, seems like a good guy. Yeah, I think he's he seems fine. pretty normal. Ultimately. I, I'd like to get some tips on his trash can making. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, the judge found him not guilty by reason of insanity. Wow. Then he sent Ed to the state hospital for the criminally insane. Ed spent the rest of his life there. He died in his 70s, and he was buried next to his mother. Mm. So here's this other thing I found out. Apparently, people, creepers, would come up to his grave, and they would, like, chip away parts of the stone to take his souvenirs. (gasps) And then finally, someone just took the whole damn thing. Oh, my gosh. Now, it's been recovered, Uh but they they haven't put it back on. Wow. So it's an unmarked grave, but, I mean, people know where it is because he's next to Augusta. Ooh. Uh, So that's the man who inspired... The book and movie, Psycho, Mm -hmm. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Mm -hmm. Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. Oh, my gosh. And it's the worst story ever. By the way, he was also known as the Mad Butcher of Plainfield. Ooh. Yeah. The Mad Butcher. Did you enjoy that? I fucking hated it. I mean, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. Just the skin really gets you, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's just so, I think, I think it just shows that I could never be a police officer. Because if it's dark, the person doesn't have electricity, and there's like bowls of skin everywhere. Yeah. I'd be like, guys, hey, how about we come back in the morning? And then I quit that night. And I I leave. (laughs) 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 Well, I... I think you did a great job with that, Kristen. That was really not your thing. And I apologize for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I could have found a horror movie based on a bunny-loving con man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need to tinkle? No, I don't. I am going to get a little more water, though. Oh, Ooh, running low. I'm dehydrated because of all that pizza. <laughs> I don't know. Was did he already land and everything? Well, I mean, I assumed he landed. What you guys don't you don't share his location? You can't check in in on him. Oh no, I find that creepy. Oh, okay, I can tell you where Zach is right now. Let's see. Where is he? Hmm. Seems to be at our home. <laughs> <laughs> did I ever tell you about the time my mom shared her location with me? No. Okay. Um, so my mom is one of those people who thinks that, you know, Google is creepy. Your phone knows too much about where you are. Like, she's been very clear with me on multiple occasions. She doesn't like how much we're monitored. Yeah. One day, I'm sitting around eating some soup at Panera. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I get this thing that says, Sherry Pitts wants to share her location with you. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? What? And it shows that my parents are, like, driving out of town. So you and, and you're I- like, she's been kidnapped. Yes! This is how oh she's God. telling me. Okay. Yeah. 
I love discussing this with you because I feel like any normal person would be like, why would you think? That is exactly. I was like, mom would never do this. We've had this conversation. Yeah. Clearly, she's in the back seat. The kidnapper is in the front seat. Yeah. She can't make the phone call. She's letting me know she's been kidnapped. Yes. I continued to eat the soup because I was pretty sure I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) After I finished, I gave her a call. She was fine. She was fine. She was fine. Just found a fun new feature on her phone. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) All right, are you ready? Mine's going to be really uplifting after that. Okay, is yours better or worse than mine? It's less gruesome. I'll settle for that. Yeah, I'll go with that. Wait, like less gruesome via nipple? No skin suits, no nipple belts. I feel like that's pretty good. Yeah. Got that going for me. Ugh. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Um, I want to start off by saying thank you to Lindsay on Twitter for tweeting us this uh, recommendation. Oh, yeah. This case. And then also say that I pulled the majority of this from an article for Crime Library by Douglas B. Lenot and from AmityvilleFiles.com. Okay. It's 6.30 p.m. on November 13th, 1974. We're at Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, New York. Bobby Kelsky was sitting at the bar when his best friend, Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., burst through the door. Please, you've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot, he shouted before falling to his knees, crying. Oh, my God. Bobby and the other bar patrons gathered around Butch to calm him and get more information. When Butch finally managed to quell his sobs, he and Bobby along with four other bar patrons, piled into his 1970 Buick Electra 225 and drove to the DeFeo home on Ocean Avenue. Wait, why didn't they call the police? (laughs) Great question. Okay, okay. (laughs) When they arrived at the home, they entered through the unlocked front door and found the house dark and quiet, except for the barking of the family dog Shaggy, who was tied up in the kitchen. Shaggy was a sheepdog. I think that's really cute. Was Shaggy harmed in any way? Nope. Okay. (laughs) I could have told... Shaggy was totally fine. Thank you very much. Oops. (laughs) Bobby Kelsky took the lead on inspecting the house, and a couple of the other men followed him upstairs to you the master bedroom. Me. You are kidding yeah, me. Yeah, so they go in, it's dark, they're like, let's let's see if we can find any dead bodies here. This is this is why I hate horror movies. <laughs> because I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> Call the police, let them poke around with their flashlights. So they get upstairs to the master bedroom and they flip on the light. No. And they are met with a gruesome scene. There before them were the bodies of Ronald DeFeo Sr. And Louise DeFeo. In the bedroom across the hall, they found the bodies of Mark and John DeFeo, Butch's younger brothers. Oh, no. 
Bobby rushed outside to find Butch, who was still distraught and crying. And he confirmed what Butch had believed since before he ran into the bar. His parents were, in fact, dead. And so were his brothers. Another one of the men, Joey Yeswit, ran to the kitchen and placed one of the most frustrating calls to the police that I have ever heard. Oh, no. Here is part of it. Okay. Suffolk County Police, may I help you? Uh, We have a shooting here. Sir, what's your name? Joey Yeswit. Can you spell that? What? Yeah, Y-E-S-W-I-T. And your phone number? I, uh, I, I don't know if it's here. There's, I, I don't have a phone number here. Okay, where are you calling from? Uh, it's in Amityville. Call up the Amityville police. It's right off of uh, Ocean Drive or Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Oh, God. Austin? Ocean Avenue? What the? <sighs> Ocean, Ocean, Ocean Avenue? Off of where? It's right off of Merrick Road, Ocean Avenue. Oh, Ocean Avenue and Merrick Road. What? What's the problem, sir? Oh my God, there's a shooting. It's a shooting. Operator, there's, there's a shooting? Anybody hurt? Oh, gee. Why did she care about spelling his name <laughs> no correctly? No shit, right? So she's like, is anybody hurt? And he's like, uh, yeah, everybody's dead. And the operator goes... What do you mean everybody's dead? Oh, my God. Okay, here's what happened. She had been an administrative assistant for, like, 20 years. She's like, what's your name? Why are you calling? How do you spell it? And it's her first day as a dispatcher. She has no idea what's happening. So Joey Yeswit says, I I don't know what happened. This kid came running into the bar. He says everybody in the family was killed, and we came down here. Yep. At this point, the operator put Joey on hold. What? Yeah. No. And handed the phone over to a police officer. Oh, my God. So the police officer gets on the phone. Jesus. Police officer. Hello? Joey. Hello? Police officer. What's your name? Oh, my God. My name is Joe Yeswit. Police officer. George Edwards? Oh, my God. (laughs) No. I hate this. This is so stupid. Joe Yes, wit. Police officer. How do you spell that? Oh my, what the hell? What? Was it his first day too? I just, how many times do I have to tell you? Y-E-S-W-I-T. <laughs> Police officer, where are you at? Oh my God. I'm on Ocean Avenue. <laughs> What's the number? I don't have a number here. There's no number on the phone. Police officer, what's the number on the house? Oh, my God, dude. I, I, I don't even know that. Police officer, where are you at? Ocean Avenue and what? In Amityville. Call up the Amityville police and have someone come down here. They know the family. Police officer, Amityville? What Joey? Yes, Amityville. Police officer. Okay, now tell me what's wrong. Oh my! Oh my God! <laughs> I don't know. A guy came running into the bar and said his mother and father are shot. We ran down to his house and everybody in the house is shot. I don't know how long they've been this way. I uh. 
Well, thank God no one's clinging to life. <laughs> no because shit. I mean, no shit. Oh. Police officer. Uh, what's the address of the house? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Joey, uh, uh, hold on. Let me go look at the yeah, number. Yeah, hold on. Like, fine, you win. At this point, Joey ran out of the house, uh-huh. read the address, and then came back to the phone. Oh, my God. One. Was he scared he was going to get shot while he was out there? I mean, you don't know. You don't know what's going yeah. on, right? Yeah. 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville. <sighs> Police officer. One what? Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) One, twelve, Ocean Avenue, Amityville. Police officer. Is that Amityville or North Amityville? Joey. Jesus, take the wheel. Amityville, right off Merrick Road. Police officer. Okay, what's your phone number? Oh my, oh my. This kid deserves a medal. (laughs) No shit. I don't have one. There's no number on the phone. Again, this is not my house. A guy came into a bar (laughs) with a story and here I am. Police officer. All right. Where are you calling from? Public phone? Oh. No, I'm calling from the house, but I don't see a number on the phone. Police officer, you're at the house itself. Dude. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Police officer, how many bodies are there? I don't know. I think they said four. Police officer, there's four? Joey. Yes. Despite how frustrating this call was, Amityville police were on the scene within 10 minutes. That is the shock of a lifetime. Seriously. Officer Kenneth Gaguski was the first to arrive. When he pulled up to the house, he found a group of men in the yard. At the center was Butch, sobbing uncontrollably. My mother and father are dead, he blubbered to the police officer. Officer Gaguski entered the house climbed the stairs to the second level, and located the bodies of Ronald, 44, Louise, 42, and 12-year-old Mark and 9-year-old John. When he, came when he came back downstairs, he went to the kitchen to use the phone to call the deaths in, and Butch was sitting at the kitchen table, still crying. When Guguski reported that four of the five residents of the home were deceased from apparent gunshot wounds, Butch interrupted to tell him that he also had two sisters who lived in the home. Oh, no. Guguski set the phone down and went back upstairs, this time accompanied by another officer who had joined him at the scene. They searched for the two girls. They found 18-year-old Don in a third bedroom on the second floor and 13-year-old Allison in a bedroom on the third floor. They were both dead. But there was so much blood that their bullet wounds weren't as easily discernible as the other victims in the house. Mm. The medical examiner would later determine that all six victims had been shot to death with a 35 caliber pump action rifle while they slept in their beds. Well, that's not possible. Why? Well, they couldn't have all been asleep with that gun going off and then they're just like waiting in their beds Interesting. To come be shot. That's an interesting idea. Well, it's an obvious idea. 
Um, Ronald and Louise. Are you going to talk to me or not? (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Ronald and and Louise had each been shot twice while the rest of the victims were shot once. Mm. Forensic evidence showed that both Louise and Allison were likely awake when they were shot. Everyone else was asleep. So Louise was the second to be shot. Uh It's believed that when she heard her husband shot, who was laying next to her, that Mm -hmm. she woke up and then was immediately shot. Okay. Allison was the one on the third floor, the farthest from the others. Uh And she was the last to be killed. And it's believed that she awoke when the shooter came into her room and was awake when she was killed. But it is believed that the rest of the family members were asleep when they were shot. How I mean, were they in soundproof rooms? I mean, and- it's interesting that you're not the only one that has questions about this. Okay. There's conspiracy theories about that. But this oh, is the good. this is the believed turn of events that everybody but those two were asleep when they were shot. Okay. It was also determined that the family had been dead approximately 16 hours by the time they were discovered, putting the time of death at around 3 a.m. on November 13th. As the only surviving member of the DeFeo family, Butch was quickly interviewed by detectives. Mm -hmm. They first interviewed him at the kitchen table of the home. The bodies of his dead family members just feet away. God. It was here where they first asked Butch if there was anyone he could think of that would do this to his family. He'd paused only a moment before offering up a name, Louis Fellini. Fellini was a notorious mafia hitman whom Butch said had a grudge against the family due to an argument that took place two years earlier. With Butch as the lone survivor of this grisly crime scene, they became concerned that if it really was a targeted mafia attack, that Butch could still be in danger. So they moved him first from the house to the temporary command post they'd set up at the neighbor's house, and then they moved him to police headquarters. Butch gave police a signed written statement that night that detailed his whereabouts for the day. He told them he'd been home the night the murders had occurred. He'd stayed up until 2, watching a television program, and then slept for a couple of hours. When he awoke at 4 a.m., He'd walk past the bathroom and heard a toilet flush. Unable to go back to sleep, he decided to go on into work. So at the time he gave this statement, the time of death had not yet been determined. Uh Uh-huh. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. He told them he'd only stayed at work until noon when he'd run out of things to do. When he'd run out of things to do at work, he left and went to visit his friend Bobby and his girlfriend Shelly. He told police that he had thought it was odd his father had not come into work. They worked together at Butch's grandfather's Buick dealership. So he'd made several attempts throughout the day to call home and check on him. Some of these attempts were made in front of Bobby and Shelley. But no one ever answered at the house. In his statement, Butch told police that he was concerned when no one answered the phone. But... Not concerned enough to keep him from drinking and doing drugs with his friends all afternoon. Mm. He admitted in this statement that he used heroin that afternoon with his friends. Okay, well, that shocks me. Yeah. But I guess if it's like you don't want to admit you murdered your whole family. You admit you used heroin, right? Sure. (laughs) Like, surely no one would lie about (laughs) that. (laughs) 
Finally, around six o'clock that evening, he'd gone home to check on things, having gone the whole day without being able to reach anyone. And that's when he'd discovered the bodies and gone to the bar for help. It was after three in the morning by the time police finished questioning Butch for the night, and they set him up with a cot in an office for him to sleep on for the night. Meanwhile, back at the house on Ocean Avenue, though, the investigation was in full swing, and detectives had just made a startling discovery. In Butch's room, mm-hmm. detectives located a rectangular cardboard box labeled Marlin 35 caliber rifle. They knew by now that this was the murder weapon, but they'd been unable to locate it to this point. The box was empty, though. But detectives thought it was no coincidence that Butch owned the exact gun that was used in the Uh shooting. By this time, detectives had also interviewed Butch's best friend, Bobby, and learned that Butch had a tumultuous relationship with his father. He felt that he was too much of a disciplinarian and that due to this, father and son had come to blows in arguments multiple times over the years. So he's going to kill his whole family because he doesn't like his dad? In detectives' minds, that was it. The final piece of the puzzle. They weren't looking for some mafia hitman. They'd had their guy all along. He'd placed himself at the home at the time of the killings. He owned the exact gun that was used in the shootings, Mm -hmm. though they still hadn't located it. He had a tumultuous relationship with his father. He'd admitted in his statement to using drugs that night. And he'd intentionally feigned concern in front of his friends, calling home multiple times to check on his family in an attempt to add a layer of concern to his scheme. It was 8.45 the following morning when detectives shook Butch awake on his cot. Did you find Fellini? he asked. But detectives informed him they weren't there about Fellini. Mm-hmm. They were there to read him his rights. Detectives questioned him again. This time, they laid out what they thought had happened. They believed that Butch had walked from room to room that night, killing his entire family in a period of 15 minutes. Whoa. Starting with his father and finishing with Allison. Butch tried to concoct a story on the spot that would explain why he had been in the house at the time of the murders. He told police that he was awoken that night by Fellini pressing a pistol to his head. okay. And that another man had been in the house as well. And that they'd forced him to go room by room with them as they murdered his family in front of him. Uh Uh-huh. And oops, forgot to mention all of that. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But that story quickly fell apart when he implicated himself. Mm Mm-hmm. Describing for detectives how he'd picked up the spent cartridges and other evidence from the scene and discarded it in a storm drain. Hmm. Note here. Detectives were able to go to this storm drain as described and recover the evidence he told them he'd dumped there. Wow. It was actually there. Well, because it was the Fellini guy and his little friend. Yeah. (laughs) Among this evidence was the rifle, ammunition, and a holster for a pistol, though no pistol was ever recovered. And no pistol was used in the crime. Wait a minute, said one of the detectives when Butch laid out how he'd picked up the discarded cartridges and stashed the 
the yeah. evidence in a storm drain. Why did you pick up the cartridges if you had nothing to do with it? Yes. The story was crumbling fast, and detectives kept poking holes in it. Finally, they said, it didn't happen that way, did it, Butch? Butch put his head in his hands and said, give me a minute. I gotta think of something. They were never there, were they, Butch? Detectives asked. Fellini and that other guy were never there. No, Butch finally confessed. He said, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Wow. Butch DeFeo's trial began on October 14th, 1975, just 11 months after the murders. Assistant District Attorney Gerard Sullivan was tasked with leading the prosecution And though he had Butch's confession and the murder weapon had been positively ID'd as Butch's rifle, he knew getting a conviction would be no easy task. Butch was a pathological liar, and he knew the defense strategy was going to be to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But he believed that Butch DeFeo was not insane at all. Rather, he was a violent, cold-blooded killer whom he intended to put away for good. In his opening statement, Sullivan told the jury, Ladies and gentlemen, each of you will be changed to some degree by this case. You will leave this courtroom after rendering a verdict, perhaps a month from now, carrying with you an abiding memory of the horror that occurred in that house at 112 Ocean Avenue in the dead of night 11 months ago. What was the address again? 112 Ocean Avenue. How do you spell your name? (laughs) Bear in mind that the evidence of how these crimes were carried out is as important to your verdict as the proof of who carried them out. Much of the evidence of how will bear upon the issue of whether you will excuse the defendant for his action by reason of some mental disease or defect. If you will keep your minds open... Carefully evaluate and assess all the proof. I'm confident that at the end of this case, you will come back into this courtroom and find Ronald DeFeo Jr. guilty of six counts of murder in the second degree. Just as the prosecution predicted, Butch DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber, rested Mm -hmm. his case completely on the claim that he was insane at the time of the killings. In pretrial hearings, Weber had tried to get the case dismissed altogether, on the basis that he had been denied counsel prior to interrogation by police and that he had been in a state of duress when the actual confession was given. Mm -hmm. These claims did not stand up on scrutiny, though, and Weber was left with no choice but to argue that his client was insane. The prosecution's strategy to fight against this argument was to call witnesses that would paint Butch as a three-dimensional human being rather than just someone who was sane or insane. They called a number of witnesses, including police officers and detectives who had worked the case, and assorted relatives and friends of Butch's. The testimony of the police and detectives was used to depict just how brutal this crime was. Mm -hmm. This was his family that was shot to death in their beds. Yeah. The testimony of the friends was used to humanize Butch and show that he was someone with a history of violence 
capable of murdering six defenseless family members. The biggest help to the prosecution's case, though, would come from a witness not called by them at all. Rather, it was someone the the defense had put on the stand. William Weber called Butch DeFeo to testify in his own defense. Why would you do that? I have no idea. That just sounds like a ridiculous thing to me. And when you're, especially in a case like this. And what's the aim? Yeah. To prove that he's insane? Yeah. And just to get him to say all kinds of crazy stuff? Yes. Oh, my. So let's let's hear a little bit of it. Okay, okay. Holding a picture of Louise DeFeo dead in her bed, Weber asked, is this your mother? Butch replied, no, sir. I told you before, and I'll tell you again. I've never seen this person before in my life. What? What? Right? Weber then showed Butch a picture of his father's body and asked, Butch, did you kill your father? Butch said, Did I kill him? I killed them all. Yes, sir. I killed them all in self-defense. Oh, okay. The jury gasped at the courtroom confession. Yeah, because it was six people, right? Yeah. He killed six Six people people in in self-defense. Including a nine-year-old? Uh-huh. Okay, Butch. The jury gasped at this courtroom confession, but Weber continued on, unfazed, and asked Butch why he had done such a thing. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, he said, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense. And there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. Oh. It's not great. It's kind of leaning towards the insane side a little bit there. To some, this testimony seemed like proof that Butch was a deranged lunatic with a fleeting grasp on reality. But the prosecutor felt that this was just a charade, another example of him being a pathological liar. And he was ready for cross-examination. Oh, my God. Sullivan knew that he would not be able to get a straight story from Butch about what had gone on in the house that night. But he believed he could goad him into revealing the twisted sense of enjoyment he got from killing his entire family. Did you feel good at the time of the murders? He asked. Yes, sir. I believe I felt very good, Butch responded. Uh, Is that because you knew they were dead? Because you'd shot each of them? I I don't know why. I can't answer that, honestly. Do you remember being glad? I don't remember being glad. I remember feeling very good. What? Ugh. Ugh. The prosecution's cross-examination then took on a provoking tone. Not by accident. That ended with Butch threatening the prosecutor's life. Oh my God. You think I'm playing? Butch said. If I had any sense, which I don't, I'd come down there and kill you right now. 
okay, if I had any sense, which I don't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's clearly someone trying to sound exactly. insane, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the case went to the jury on November 19th, 1975, a year and six days after the murders. Both sides knew their case hinged on how jurors saw the defendant and which of the expert witness testimony they found most credible. As both the prosecution and defense had offered up their own experts to explain why Butch was or wasn't insane. Mm-hmm. The jury's first vote was 10 to 2 in favor of conviction. Yeah. The two holdouts were uncertain about Butch's mental state at the time of the killing. The jurors deliberated and asked to review certain evidence, including transcript transcripts of Butch's testimony. Then, on November 21st, 1975, they returned a guilty verdict on all counts. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for each of the six counts. He is currently held at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. All of his appeals and parole bids to date have been denied. Hmm. He is 67 years old. On December 18th, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz, along with their three small children, moved into the home at 112 Ocean Avenue. It had been just over a year since the murders and less than a month since Butch's conviction. What? 28 days later, the Lutzes left the home, claiming to have been terrorized by paranormal phenomena while living there. Okay. I don't believe in no ghosts, but what the hell were you thinking? Why are they moving in there? Yes. It was apparently a great deal. Oh, I bet it was. Because six people had just been murdered there. Oh, did that take the the value of the property down a notch? See, you got to bulldoze these places. Otherwise, weirdos are like, let's move in, honey. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's weird <laughs> great, in here. Great. Yeah, they said that they knew of the murders, but they were not deterred by them at all to buy this house. The Lutz's story was the basis for the novel The Amityville Horror oh. by Jay Anson, released in 1977, which purported itself to be the true story of their time there. It is the basis for the movie of the same name, which was released in 1979, starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. The movie spawned a fucking huge line of sequels, nine in total, I believe, Mm -hmm. but they had little to do with the original story. And a remake was released in 2005, starring an extremely jacked Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) And Melissa George as George and Kathy Lutz. Ryan Reynolds was so hot in this movie. <laughs> I wish people could see your eyes right like, now. super fucking hot. <laughs> Randy, you got a little drool right here. <laughs> the Lutzes did not work directly with Jay Anson, but they did submit around 45 hours of tape recordings of them describing the things that went on in the house and he used those as his source material for the book. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good source material. Here are a few of the things descri- they described happening in the home. George would wake up around 3.15 every morning and would go out to check on the boathouse, 
Later, he would learn that this was the estimated time of the DeFeo killings. Mm. Kathy had vivid nightmares about the murders and discovered the order in which they occurred and the rooms where they took place. The Lutch children also began sleeping on their stomachs in the same way the dead bodies of the DeFeo family had been found. Well, that's not that weird. Yeah, I agree that that one's not that weird. Kind of (laughs) lame. All of a sudden, they were sleeping on their stomachs. No one does that. (laughs) George discovered a small hidden room about four feet by five feet behind shelving in the basement. The walls were painted red and the room did not appear in the blueprints of the house. Okay, well, that is scary as fuck. The room came to be known as the Red Room. This room had a profound effect on their dog, Harry, who refused to go near it and cowered as if sensing something ominous. Oh. The Lutz's five-year-old daughter, Missy, developed an imaginary friend named Jody, a demonic pig-like creature with glowing red eyes. In the early morning hours of Christmas Day, 1975, George looked up at the house after checking on the boathouse and saw Jody standing behind Missy at her bedroom window. Ew, no. When he ran up to her room, he found her fast asleep with her small rocking chair moving slowly back and forth. No, no, no. <laughs> Creeped out. Can't do it. When the Lutzes became certain that there was something wrong with the home, they attempted to have it blessed on two separate occasions. Uh, There's not enough blessings, folks. (laughs) When they didn't work, they made the decision to leave the home. They were only there for 28 days. Well, that's 28 days longer than I'd want to be there. That's... (laughs) Their accounts of what went on while they were in the home are believed by many to be a hoax made up for financial gain. Okay. The next owner of the home said that there were no signs of physical damage. There was a next owner of that home? Yeah, the home still stands today and people live in it. Oh my, what? It's a beautiful home. I don't care how beautiful (laughs) it is. (laughs) So none of the other owners of this home in the... 40 years since this has Mm -hmm. has happened have experienced anything in the home. Well, yeah, I totally believe that this was for financial gain. I mean, that's such a stunt to be there for 28 days. Uh Yeah. So the, the book lays out a bunch of actual like damage that occurs to the house, like locks being broken and, and stuff like that. Um, The person who purchased the home from the Lutzes said that, there was no such damage in the home mm-hmm. and that the fixtures that were there were all original. It wasn't like they'd replaced things. Yeah. Um, they said that they'd experienced no strange activity at all other than sightseers coming to the house oh, after sure. all the success of the book and the movie. Yeah. George and Kathy maintained that their accounts were mostly true with only a small amount of embellishment. And in June of 1979, they even took polygraph test to prove it the tests were administered by chris gugas and michael rice who were at the time among the top five polygraph examiners in the country the results showed that the lutzes were being truthful Hmm. but i think all that that says is that they had convinced themselves sure 
that it was true. Sure. Right? Well, and I think it's probably fairly easy to pass a polygraph. But yeah, I, I, I can believe that. I can believe that it's a hoax, and I can believe that they believed it. Mm-hmm. One of the most outspoken people around the book calling it a hoax was William Weber, Butch DeFeo's defense attorney. Really? He claimed that he knew it was a hoax because he'd cooked up the idea right alongside George and Kathy over several bottles of wine one night. What? Yes. George and Kathy Lutz filed a lawsuit against William Weber, along with a host of other people, including writers, clairvoyants who visited the home, and various publications who had printed stories about the hauntings, alleging misappropriation of their names for trade purposes, invasion of privacy, and mental distress. They sought $4.5 million in damages. Whoa, okay, that's too much. Weber, along with two others named in the suit, countersued for $2 million, alleging fraud and breach of contract. The cases against the publications were dismissed quickly due to lack of evidence. But the rest of the case was heard in New York court in 1979 by Judge Jack B. Weinstein. Ultimately, he dismissed the Lutz's case saying, based on what I have heard, it appears to me that to a large extent, the book is a work of fiction, relying in large part upon the suggestions of Mr. Weber. Wow. Kathy Lutz died of emphysema in 2004 at the age of 57. George Lutz called the 2005 remake of the movie Drivel and sued the makers for breach of contract, defamation, and libel. Oh, come on. He objected particularly to the scene in the film where the male lead, played by that super jacked Ryan Reynolds that I mentioned Did earlier. Did he not enjoy being I mean, he hair? should have fucking loved that he was yeah. being played by the, the hottest Ryan Reynolds that's ever been captured on film. <laughs> He's super hot in this movie. Okay. Like, you know that, like, that, like, hip thing? Okay. You have been into that hip thing <laughs> since middle school. I've never understood it. It is so defined in this movie. You and that hip thing. I, this, I'm getting like flashbacks. I'm getting in sync flashbacks right now. I fucking love that. I know you do. I know. I don't get it. That and then just like a really chiseled jaw. Those are the things. That okay. Like... Well, everyone's on board for the chiseled jaw. Nobody else likes the. I'm not saying nobody else. Thing. I'm not saying nobody else. I'm just saying like it's so down the list. No. Oh, I like a good big toe. No, this is yeah. not the same as a big toe. This is like here's an arrow. <laughs> <laughs> To what? The big to where toe? the magic happens. <laughs> so George Lutz is pissed about this remake. <laughs> he objects to a scene where uh, Ryan Reynolds, playing George Lutz, mm-hmm. is shown killing the family dog with an axe. The film also shows the George Lutz character building coffins for members of his own family. Uh-huh. The defamation claim was dismissed by a Los Angeles court in November of 2005, while the other issues related to the lawsuit remained unresolved when George Lutz passed away due to heart disease in 2006 at the age of 59. Wow. He and his wife both died young. Yeah. Probably those 28 days that they spent probably took years off their lives. Yeah. 
Um, So I just want to wrap up with a quote, one from Kathy and one from George, about their experiences here. So first from Kathy. She said this in 2000. Some people have called our testimony about Amityville a hoax. There is nothing I could say to them. There is nothing I could show them that would be new evidence that this is the truth. It is the truth. It is my testimony. It is where I came from. And to judge another's testimony, not having experienced it, not having gone through it, or have been touched by it, you don't have the right to. Yours is just an opinion. And that opinion doesn't hold water. Wow. (laughs) And then in 2002, George Lutz said, It is my prayer that everyone in this room never go through such a thing. But if you know someone that does... The hardest thing for those people is the loss of being able to communicate with anyone else about it. Not being able to find anyone that can intelligently help them. It's not talked about. It's not understood. And when it happens to you, you become an alien to everyone else. I mean, both of those things are pretty touching. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that these people really believed that this happened to them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's the true story of the Amityville Horror. I have to look up that house now. It's beautiful. Do you need me to tell you the address again? 112 Ocean (laughs) Avenue. Amityville. Oh, wow. Hang on. Yeah, that's a beautiful house. Okay, Sarah, are you looking at the one that has, do you see the one that has the half moon windows on it? Or do they have normal windows on the side of it? Oh, I'm looking at one with half moon. Okay, so those have been replaced. Those are like really became like an icon of this when this Uh happened because it was seen as like these eyes of the house. So those have been replaced with regular windows now. Okay. Oh, yeah. I see ones with regular windows. I mean, it doesn't change the fact that, you know. A bunch of murders happened there. Yeah. That's a beautiful house, though. It's so beautiful. I would, I mean... I I say I would live there, but I don't know that I would. I don't know that I could. I think it recently sold for like $800,000. Okay. Um, It is on Long Island, so. Yeah. Property values there are like crazy. Because it's not an overly, it's a really nice house. And the DeFeo family had a lot of money. They were very well to do. Yeah. Um, Louise DeFeo's dad um, owned that Buick dealership and it did really well and, you know, the uh, Ronald Sr. and Butch both worked there. And like Butch had, had been a really difficult to control child. He was the oldest and he'd always acted out and he had behavioral issues. And and so his dad had disciplined him a lot as a child. Okay. Um, and his dad also had a really quick temper. And when he would lose it, Butch would be the first person to be like the brunt of that. And so oh. he was always the one that was taking whatever he was giving out if it was just yelling or if it was hitting or whatever it was most often done to butch Mm. the family was also super religious the kids went to parochial school 
but Butch got kicked out of it. But like at the same time, Butch was this kid who was having all these problems. But for his 14th birthday, they gave him a $15,000 speedboat. Okay. Because the, well, gee, I wonder why he yeah, was a little monster. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then um, he was using drugs constantly. Like uh, he was heavily into LSD and heavily into heroin at the time of the murders. And how old was he at the time of the murders? Like, I want to say like 23. Yeah. 22 or 23. Yikes. Yeah. I think yours was more lighthearted, but then Have mine. you? Well, it was because there were no nipple belts or <sighs> tape on vaginas. Yeah. No box of vulva. Fuck. Box of salted vulva. <sighs> Have you ever, you've never seen the Amityville Horror? No. Okay, I want you to look up right now Ryan Reynolds' Amityville Horror. Okay. There is a, a picture of him shirtless in this. Okay, I'm just doing an image search. Oh, my. Woo! He's super Woo! jacked, right? Randy, why don't you go on home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he looks good. This is like, I feel like when he, like, before he'd been, like, the funny guy. Uh-huh. And then he went to, like, super Because this is 2005 when this came out. Yeah. So he's, like, been super hot for a long time now. Yeah. But... This was like the first time that it was like, I mean, I'm sorry. Look at, I mean, look at, look at this. Yeah. You're going to have to describe it because, you know, we're on a podcast right now. It's the hip thing. He's got on, he, okay, he's shirtless. And he's got like pants that are like they're Britney like, Spears, low rise, they're pajam- 2002. But they're pajama pants. Yeah. So they're just, he's gotten out of bed. He's all sweaty. He's woken up. It's 3.15, I'm guessing. Yeah. He's woken up. <gasps> So I need to go check on the boathouse. And he just gets out of bed, just perfect, just sheen all over his perfect pecs and abs and that hip V thing. And he's just strutting his way out to the boathouse. If I were Ryan Reynolds, I'd be worried that you were going to try to make a suit out of him right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, he, he looks amazing in this movie. Except it looks like, you know, they've got to have some... Some scenes where he's very mentally disturbed. It, it looks like they went a little heavy on the brown eyeliner on him. Oh, oh yeah. He's very heavily disturbed. Well, he, so not mentioned. I didn't mention it here, but because I don't know that this was actually in the book. I've never read the book. I've seen the original movie and I've seen the remake. The drivel. Um, the drivel. Yes. And uh, the family, while they were in the home, they were also getting like progressively like sicker. Like they were coming down with like flu-like symptoms. So like by the fucking end of the 28 days, George's eyes are just bloodshot to all hell. And he's got these dark circles under his eyes. Okay. So I think that's yeah. kind of what, what you're what you're seeing here in the, these photographs. <laughs> Thank you. No Wonderful. problem. <laughs> What'd you think of our theme episode, Kristen? You know, I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the Halloween episode. It yeah. was creepy as hell. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm glad it's over. I don't want to read about that guy ever again. You know, so I I like the movie Psycho. I yeah. love Silence of the Lambs. It's yeah. one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Had no idea mm-hmm. that that was based on some mm-hmm. creepy dude. And actually, I kind of think those movies are less creepy than they the actual are. guy. They <laughs> are. For real. For real. Because <laughs> I am telling you, I did not list everything that was found in that house. Yeah. So, okay. 
tell me if you came across this in your reading. I feel like he had made like a candy dish out of a hollowed out skull. Does that sound familiar at all? So uh, I'm trying to think back. He'd made like soup bowls. And oh, maybe stuff. that's what I'm thinking of. But I mean, who's to say what's a soup bowl and oh, I what's, mean, a, what's candy a candy dish, dish when you're talking about human remains? That's right. You yeah. do you. <laughs> I also read somewhere that he had skulls on his bedposts. Oh, I gosh. Mean, yeah. So you're telling me that if you ended up in Plainville, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, Plainfield, Plainfield Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you wouldn't just cruise on by the site of his where his home was. Oh, I would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I think I would. All right. Would you go to the cemetery? Find his mother's grave. Gosh, well, here's the thing. I'm in Plainfield. Yeah. I might as might well. Might as well, right? <laughs> what else am I going to do? Oh, oh, look, you try to be like, oh, I'm not that creepy. I would never go to a museum where they had these kind of artifacts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's what I'm thinking. I am really creeped out by going and seeking that stuff out in like the immediacy of the moment. Yeah. But I realized as you were talking and I'm like, ew, who could ever live in a place like that? Norman grew up in a house yeah. where like they don't know that a woman was murdered there, but it's like this famous ghost yeah. story. Yeah. So, and I don't think that place should be torn down. Do you sleep in that house? Yeah. When you guys go there? Every Christmas. <laughs> Have you ever had an experience? No. Did your eyes fly open at 3.15 in the morning? No. Did you get up all sweaty and go check out the boathouse? I got up all sweaty, and let me tell you, I was ripped. (laughs) Just abs for days. (laughs) That's right. I was like, this is wonderful. (laughs) I'm so much hotter than when I first fell asleep. This beard I'm growing is coming in nicely. (laughs) Um, I feel like since it's our Halloween episode, Uh uh, you and I... Grew oh, up, shut up. I know what you're going to say. Grew up together as young children who went trick-or-treating many times. Don't waste your time, Brandy. I'm going to cut this whole thing And out. I would like to just reminisce on a couple of those stories real quick. So, listeners, one year, <laughs> I wish I could remember what you were dressed up as this year, but I don't know. Okay. Kristen decided that she was going to be the most polite trick-or-treater ever. Mm-hmm. At each house we went to, she decided that in return for the candy that they were giving her, she would give them one compliment. (laughs) So it started out, you know, oh, I really like your house. You know, your lawn looks really nice. The grass, the landscaping's really nice. And then as the night went further on. I don't know what happened. I ran out of compliments. The compliments started to fall apart. So we get to this one house. Okay. We go up, we ring the doorbell. The woman comes to the door and her she has a, a small child with her. Um, it's obviously, you know, one of his first Halloweens. Um, he's already done trick-or-treating. He's just standing there helping hand out candy. I feel like he was dressed as a pumpkin, but I don't How do you remember know that this for so sure. Well. That's just the image I have in my mind. Okay. So Kristen says, you know, trick-or-treat. The woman hands us the candy, and Kristen says to the woman, I like your kid. <laughs> and that was uh, when the woman slammed the door in our face. No, <laughs> Do 
I sound too much like a 51 year old bachelor who likes to babysit kids. Yeah. It's a, um, the other Halloween that comes to mind is the year that uh, we dressed as the Spice Girls. Oh, yeah. And it, do you remember this? It was pouring down rain. Yes. And we were the only trick-or-treaters in we your neighborhood. cleaned up. Everybody was, like, dumping their whole buckets oh. in our bags. Because they're like, oh, we haven't had any trick-or-treaters. And it's it like was the handfuls best. full of candy going in our bags. But we were fucking freezing. It was so cold. Do you remember that? I, I remember it very, very well. Because I, I remember people were like. Oh, yeah. People were kind of like hanging out in their garages. Uh-huh, so, yes. I mean, it was and like when when we showed up, every time they were surprised. Yes. And so yeah, we. Oh, oh man, we got so candy. much candy. Mm. I was sporty spice. Yep. You were ginger spice. Ooh. I fought hard for ginger yeah. spice. Mm-hmm. Kyla was scary spice. Mm-hmm. And our friend Laura was posh. Good casting there. Laura yeah. is posh. Yeah, she's definitely posh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who was baby? Um, I don't recall. Shit. Hmm. Let us know. Yeah, if you trick or treated with us, <laughs> the Halloween and dressed up as Baby Spice, reach out to us. It's one of three people uh, yeah. in my mind. <laughs> uh, I know that it was not Christine because she was too cool. Really? For oh, our, she, she was, dressed as yes. a French soccer fan because yes. the World Cup was going on or had just ended or whatever. I don't know anything about soccer, so okay. I apologize. This has to be really weird for our listeners. Who are like, <laughs> They're like, we don't, we we don't, don't know care who, these who you are. went to elementary That's school. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we good times. We had, we had some good times trick or treating. Yeah, I like your kid. To this day, I come up to parents and just give them a dead eyed stare. I like your I kid. I like your kid. <laughs> no one ever asks me to babysit. I bet. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, so I've got exciting news. Oh. You ready for this? I am. So, like I said, Norman went to Portland for Retro Gaming Expo. Yeah. A person came up to him. I don't know the person's name. person came up to him. Said she was a fan of the podcast. Excellent. She'd found out about it through Gerard the Completionist when Thank he gave you, us Gerard. a shout out. Mm-hmm. Then through Let's Go to Court, she found out about Gaming Historian. Oh, in your yes! face, Norman! So we are tired of him riding our huh. coattails. Huh. No more drafting off of us, sir. <sighs> You know, what has he done for us, really? Hmm? You know, we have over a hundred Twitter followers. That's right. And 82 ratings and reviews on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're practically, our heads barely fit through the door tonight. <laughs> So that was the exciting thing I had to tell you. Oh, my gosh. That's so exciting. Thank you. Um, If you are not one of our uh, followers on social media that we just spoke of, get your ass on it. (laughs) Come find us. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And uh, head on over to iTunes. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. We would appreciate it oh so very much. 
And, you know, a lot of people don't know that the good karma will come back to them in the form of chiseled abs. Abs, yeah. In that that V thing with the hips. That weird V thing will appear. That's right. Whether you're a man or a woman. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's coming at you. (laughs) No, but thank you to everybody who's supporting us. We appreciate it. We appreciate it so much. So, so much. We have such a blast putting these out. We really do. Yeah. I was just thinking about this. Um, when did we start this? February? Yeah. I think our first episode came out the end of February, beginning of March, something like that. Yeah. This is super fun. It is super fun. Except for, you know. When you have to talk about nipple belts and salt and vulvas. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, guys, for joining us on this extra spooky edition of... <laughs> Let's go to court. <laughs> Did you forget the name of our No, pod? I was okay. doing a dramatic pause. Oh, okay, okay. Good. All right, all right. Good. Join us next week when we'll be <laughs> experts on a whole new topic. Podcast adjourned. adjourned. Well, that was so much. <laughs> and now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from newspapers.com, Crime Library, and an episode of Biography on A&E. And I got my info from Crime Library, Murderpedia, AmityvilleFiles.com, and Wikipedia. For a full list of our sources, visit LGT tcpodcast.com any errors are of course ours but please don't take our word for it go read their stuff 